Greetings, dear listeners. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. You can find us where all uh, re- respectable podcasts are sold or downloaded or traded for um, various goods and services or illegal contraband. Uh, let's skip over all the usual give us likes and, and reviews and get straight to the conversation. Today, we are. Uh, this is one of these rare times where, sort of like with Scott Lincecum, I'm bringing in somebody who I feel like I know, but I don't actually know, and we've met for the first time mere minutes ago, so we may up may end up, you know, you know, smashing each other over the head with broken bottles. Who knows? Um, but I have with us Ian Bremer, who is the president and founder of the Eurasia Group. So he is, um, I think. Uh, a, a single drop of his tears would cause Steve Bannon to burst into flames. Um, and he has come up with a new book on the Us versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremer. Ian, welcome to the whatever this thing is. Thanks. Good to have you here. I'm happy to be here. It's a nice place. So um, one of my favorite questions when I'm on a book tour, which is amazing how often you don't get asked it, is what's your book about? So what's your book about? <laughs> okay. We can start that way. Uh, well, I mean, the the book is about um, the fact that uh, a lot of people, particularly in the developed world, but increasingly all over the world, um, are, are unhappy uh, about the business community, the media, and particularly the establishment uh, on the political side. Right. That, that is, uh, Trump is symptomatic but not in any way a driving force of that brexit same thing and it's getting a lot worse mm. right uh, and so this uh the fact that globalism the fact that i grew up with this idea that we would have more open borders and more free trade and we'd be the global policeman and that was something that not just our elites said would be good for them but actually would be good for all of us that hasn't worked right? it's worked for them but it hasn't worked for the rest of us and it's causing far greater divides in society Society, which I think uh, that pendulum is going to swing a lot farther before it comes back. I'm I'm always blown away by the number of people who hate Trump that think that if you get rid of Trump that we can go back to normal, or the people in Europe that say, well, now that Brexit's happened and everyone's seen how bad Brexit is, right. that it's all now we're okay. Right, right. And at least Macron now, the French president, has uh, you know come out in advance of his big. Uh, uh, trip to the United States first state visit uh, that Trump's going to have saying, hey, there's a civil war going on in Europe right now. And if he was being honest, you'd say there's one in the United States, too. And I think that that is the that is a more appropriate discussion than uh, Comey um, on tour saying that Trump is uh, morally unfit to be president. Yeah. So uh, I, I agree certainly with the Trump part and the Brexit part and all that. I've been saying for a long time that Trump is a, a symptom of much larger structural social forces both here and abroad i agree and i think our problems in washington are downstream of all sorts of other things going on in the culture but when you say that globalism hasn't worked for the non-establishment the non-elites right Mm -hmm. um however defined it maybe you should define them but there's a lot of data that says it actually has right in terms of we are living in the greatest moment of, of uh, poverty alleviation in human history. True. Right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, per capita income in, in all of these places, uh, lots of these places, including the ones that have these populist upsurges, is actually improving, right? So is it a matter of it hasn't worked for them or it doesn't feel like it hasn't worked for them? Well, I, I didn't call the book The Failure of Globalization yeah. for that reason because I completely agree with you that, I mean, my God, you look at how if you take the entire world's population – 
and look at poverty distribution and look at wealth distribution, and you see that now instead of having these two big bumps on one side and the other, you actually have like kind of a, 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 a effectively a normal distribution right. as the Chinese and the Indians and others have created middle classes, right? right. That's a big win. Right. So massive poverty alleviation around the world. Now, I mean, obviously the distribution effects in the West have been deeply problematic for um, the working and middle classes. Mm -hmm. But this book is only a little bit about economics. Mm -hmm. This book is a lot about um, identity politics and culture. This book is a lot about security. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I mean, let's face it, uh, the United States has gone to failed wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq and now Syria in a much smaller way on the back, uh, not of the globalists, right, right, right. <laughs> but on the back of people like my dad. Right. Um, and, uh, and they're unhappy about it. Um, and then, of course, technology and the fact that technology is doing perhaps even more than any of those first three things to help ensure um, that it's not about one common humanity increasingly. It's not Steven Pinker future anywhere mm-hmm. in the near term. It's actually much more tribal. It's much more, I can dehumanize you because you're not one of us. I think right. that's, the world is very clearly moving in that direction. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that, uh, again, I, I think that uh, that globalism as an ideology mm-hmm which has been promoted as kind of the trumpet of uh, those elites that have run liberal democracies since World War, after World War II. And at, at the end of World War II, globalism had this singular moment, right, right. where um, we were going to actually rebuild not only allies, but even our former enemies right. in Japan and Germany, because we believed that as one humanity, we would never fight that kind of war again. Right. And we needed to that. We had to think of our long term interests opposed to our short term interests. You look around the world today. You don't see that moment happening. Right. Right. But I mean, so some of that, though, we called it globalism or we re- I'm not even sure we called it globalism after World War Two. Right. We right. retroactively said, oh, that was globalism. Right. It was really Pax Americana. Right. Yeah, sure. And and it, so it seems to me the part of the problem is really sort of whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's the decline of interest in sustaining a Pax Americana anymore that creates these vacuums that allows some of these other state actors who never wanted to be part of them in the first place, mm-hmm. part of that world order. But, you know, so not that I would ever dare plug my own book on on this podcast, but uh, one of the things I do spend some time on is identity politics. And um, I agree with you that it's a big part of, of the problem. But explain to me how you think it's a part of the problem on a global scale. Well, um there are lots of ways. Uh, I mean, you know, the it's not just in the United States. So, for example, Japan is one place where you really don't see any growth in populism right now, mm-hmm. right? Well, the only, perhaps, major advanced industrial democracy where it's just not an issue. Why? No immigrants. Right. All Japanese. And population shrinking. Right. So, per capita, even though, you know, we can talk about stagnation in Japan, per capita, actually, working class, middle class feels pretty good. And so, you do have this still strong sense of civic nationalism where media, business community, and Japanese political parties are just about as trusted now as they were 30, 40 years ago. Right. Now, um, you go to Europe and you look at what just happened with the Northern League in Italy, who came to power on the back of, we will deport 600,000 people. Yeah. All those Libyans that came in, we're getting rid of them. That is a really popular message among Italians who, by the way, in the North, economically are doing pretty well. Yeah. Right? And we saw how Merkel got whacked after she said, I'm going to take a million Syrians, do as much as we can. Which no. may have been the biggest blunder, I think, it, or could have... It, 
could turn out to be one of the bigger blunders in, in European history, the way that was handled. Whether Certainly post-war history. Yeah. Without any question. Oh, yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Post-war, probably. A, yeah. Particularly for a guy named Goldberg to say yeah. post-war yeah. history. Goldberg, <laughs> Goldberg. Yeah, exactly. So, and by the way, yeah, I don't mean you in terms of globalists, right? Just yeah. to be clear, it's not, there's no triple parentheses <laughs> around that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, this is something that sort of fascinates me is that 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 um, the political science on this is pretty settled that large waves of of I, want, I don't want to say undigestible but difficult to digest immigrants creates populist backlashes mm-hmm. right the guy I always cite is Robert Putnam who had that mm-hmm. survey which found that it erodes civil society it erodes social trust you look at Europe and yet and a lot of these political scientists, like Putnam, are pretty liberal guys, right? Yeah. yeah. But and, data is data. But right? data is data. Right. And when it gets – so it comes out of the sort of idea, you know, factories of of social science. And the second it sort of gets processed through the middlemen of journalism and political elites, it immediately gets translated into, well, that's a racist reaction and therefore we can't take it seriously. And first of all, I don't think it's necessarily a racist reaction. Sometimes it surely is. And the more toxic the populism gets, the more racist it can get. Mm. But if you have the situation in the United States at least, and I think it's true in lots of Europe, where you have certain elites, certain globalists, who simply because they don't like the idea that assimilation and, and integration is difficult with immigrants, that they're just not going to address the problem and they're going to demonize people who don't like it, how do you fix this problem? Well, one way you fix it is less immigration. Yeah. You build more walls, and I talk about that in my book, right? Um, now, when you fix it, a lot of people don't like that. I and mean, let's be clear. A Fox put out last week um, this slide that clearly they meant to be a positive thing, which is that um, in 2016, last year of Obama, we had about 16,000 Syrian refugees come to the U.S. Last year, it was about 11,000. So far this year, 11. Right. right. So I posted it. And I'd say about half of the Americans that responded to that um, were saying, oh, my God, this is horrible. Right. We're forsaking our our values. The other half said 11 is too many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And um, look, the, the fact is that uh, the data on immigration over time also changes. When uh, Christine Lagarde, who I have a, a lot of time for, I mm-hmm. like a lot personally, um, you know, was supporting Merkel and saying, yeah, we need to take these Syrians on board because it's going to help the German economy. Actually, the Syrians coming in did not have the skill sets yeah. to help the German economy. Yeah. And so that that wasn't going to work. Um, in the United States, when Reagan decided to sort of shore up the Mexican border and Mexicans didn't come over, we suddenly had real labor shortfalls and agriculture prices went up because no one was going to do it. Right. Um, if you have globalization that's already taken a lot of jobs out and then you have technology and automation that's saying we don't need the these people anymore, then, I mean, the economic argument for a lot of this immigration is simply going to be more challenging, especially on the back of a lot of working and middle-class people that already feel like you're not taking care of us and actually you're more interested in taking care and paying attention to other folks around the world. So, you know, and, 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 and I just think that, look, when Trump, one of the things that's been most compelling to me about Trump, and when I say compelling, I don't mean this in a negative or positive way. I just mean compelling. Sure, sure, sure. Um, is when he says... Walls work. Mm-hmm. Look at Israel. Yeah. They really do. Mm-hmm. Right? And not only do they work in helping Israel be the most developed, advanced, best run, most transparent, best separation of powers uh, government in the Middle East, including for the Arabs that live in Israel. Right. But Although, are, in fairness, a 
look, I'm a very pro Israel guy. Yeah. That is a low bar. Just you know, when know. you say the most democratic country in the Middle East. No, but by far. No, I know. I agree. It's, it's essentially far. it's essentially a Western style. It, it is. I mean, yeah, even no, in the, you look at freedom of press and independent judiciary and compare them to the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'd say they do a good job. Yeah. Anti-corruption compared to the U.S., they do a good job. Yeah. Right. Which is why Netanyahu is in such trouble over right. small money right now. And if you listen to what, what. Arab Israelis say on the floor of the Knesset of their own country, right? And you think that like Maxine Waters is like hostile to American value or something like that. I mean, like the things that you can say freely, yes, in the right. Knesset and about the Israel are, are extraordinary. Amazing would blow away any American. It would like Fox News would lose its mind if Amer- if Democrats said that kind of stuff, right. On the floor. I mean, I, look, I agree with you. Israel is a is a free country, and yet, yeah, right. Th- those walls work really well. Mm-hmm. In in so far as now, if you're Israeli, you don't need to think about a two state solution anymore. Yeah. It's irrelevant. Yeah. The Palestinians are not a threat. Hezbollah is not a threat. They can't get in. You don't need their labor. Hezbollah gets knocked down by Iron Dome if they try to shoot a missile at you. You're building like even underneath the Gaza border, so they can't do the tunnels anymore. Yeah. You've got incredible surveillance. You want to talk about extreme vetting? Try to take El Al to Tel Aviv. No. That's extreme vetting. I've done that before, right? And. And that also means that the Israelis don't need to think about the Palestinians as people. It doesn't matter, right? And Trump gets that if he can build some walls, he can also help the Americans in his base stop thinking about other people as people. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the fact that the Nigerians, when they come over, will never leave. They never want to go back to their huts. And the Haitians are all going to bring AIDS. And the Mexicans are going to rape and criminalize. And those black athletes that make tens of millions of dollars that we allow them to make. And how dare they kneel Mm -hmm. for our national anthem? I think that's really powerful. And I don't want to live in a country like that. Mm -hmm. But we increasingly do live in a country like that. And it wasn't Trump. Mm. Trump's just taking advantage of it. So I I think that it is really important to understand that the combination of the economic, the security, the cultural, and the technological are moving us to an environment where liberal democracy will work really well as long as you're on the right side of the wall. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the book's about. Yeah. Because I don't like that. Yeah. No, I don't like it either, but it may, be tr- may just be the fact of the matter. No, it's true. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. the fact that a lot of people don't recognize it, the fact that a lot of Americans think that as long as we get rid of Trump, it's all going to be okay, or we've had Brexit, so now things are okay. We, we elected Macron, and so now we've moved past this. No, no, no. Right. This is the beginning of this process. And in the same way that climate change, you know, for a couple of decades, you had people just arguing about just the basic science, people just saying, no, it's not happening. Now, at least you've gotten to the point that we know that there's an issue. The question is how we're going to address it, what kind of resources you do and don't want to spend. Are you long-term, short-term? Who, right. Are you going to get hurt? We, we, on this issue, on the failure of globalism and the rise of us versus them, we, we as a society are not yet prepared to address that it's even happening. Yeah. No, I, I think that's largely right. And, you know, one of them, um, just an aside, I was thinking about it. I have a friend um, who was telling me about this news story that uh, someone forwarded him on. You might know the name of it. It's, it's, it's the closest thing Germany has to a conservative television network. And it's a story about a Syrian refugee who came to Germany and he brought his wife and his 11 kids mm. and the state is paying for him yep. to live in, I think it's in either Leipzig or Stuttgart, but you know, in some expensive city paying for this very expensive, you know, several thousand euro a month yep. apartment. Yep. And the government 
won't let them work because of the work permit stuff and the refugee mm-hmm. stuff. And you can just imagine the the man on the street interviews for something like this, mm-hmm. where they're just like, "This is this is insane, right?" And it does seem to me that one of the points that yeah, and think about the problems that causes even for average Israelis in thinking about the Orthodox, right, right, and that's the same issue. And they're the same people. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, imagine yeah. how you feel if you're in, and you know the resentment there. Yeah, right. It's huge. Yeah, for listeners who don't know, the ultra Orthodox in Israel are basically exempted from military service from almost everything and don't work. And they don't work. They're basically they're essentially on welfare and and they have um, a lot of kids and they have an enormous number of kids and they're particularly nasty to sort of the more secular Jews when they see them on the street, you know, see girls in skirts or whatever, they yell at them and all that kind of stuff. And it is a it is a socially t- a ticking time bomb in Israel for a lot of bad politics. And so now let's take that yeah. and talk about a German feeling about a Syrian, right. a Muslim Syrian that's come over right. and it gets even hotter, mm-hmm. right? And so, I mean, you can just see this playing out yeah. all over the country and the world. Yeah, I mean, it's like that... You know, George Borjas took that line from the Swiss playwright for the title of his book, which was, uh, uh, we wanted workers and we got people. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that's, and it's a huge part of the problem with um, the way we look at the economy for most, you know, for most of our lives, labor, you know, industry economics was labor intensive and it's becoming less and less so. And so you make a good point about in- importing the workers. Um but it seems to me in, in American politics, you still have, you know, you have a Republican Party that increasingly, like, when, whenever I've been asked for years, it's you know, so a National Review's position on immigration, yep. which we've been demonized about for years and years and years. Um, and it's funny, some of Trump's biggest supporters used to call us racist for it, and now they're like gung-ho, full for, on board. fully yep. on board, and they're like, yep. wait a second, you know, why'd you lap around us? And our position always was, if that immigration is a serious political economic issue, it should be treated seriously by responsible politicians because if it's not, it'll fester until it becomes such a ripe opportunity for irresponsible politicians. Mm-hmm. And I think that explains the rise of Trump pretty well, right? Uh, hey, that piece of it. That piece of it, right. Yeah. And my – um and my uh, – so whenever I get asked, you know, what my – because I'm kind of a squish on immigration in theory, my – whenever I'm asked what's my preferred immigration policy – my answer has always been to have one, right? Whatever, whatever it is. If we want a million immigrants a year, great, a million. Mm-hmm. But it can't be a million two, can't be a million five. You can't turn away and look away from the visa violators and the people who are crossing the border. You have to impose whatever the law is. You want a timeout? That's fine too. But I think part of the reason why you get this seething backlash, and as someone who's been living on the right, you know, in politics and, and on journalism for so long, I've seen a lot of this stuff coming for years mm-hmm. where – it's not so much that conservatives dislike immigration. They dislike being played for suckers where we told, OK, this is the last amnesty. And then it turns out we're just going again and again and again. And it created, and that's where the wall came out of was this idea of prove that we're really going to do something on the enforcement side first. Right. And then we can talk about what to do with the immigrants. But let's keep in mind let's, that we're going to lose something, right? I mean, the re- Japan doesn't have this problem, but Japan also has no entrepreneurship, right? right. Because it's all kind of like one group. And, you know, in the United States, uh, there is an obvious advantage mm-hmm. in diversity. Right. Uh, and diversity is not making uh, first-tier cities into multicultural versions of Monaco. 
Right. Because that's not diversity. That's not where you get diverse ideas. You get diverse ideas from really diverse cultures and from people that are aspirational and they really want to work and they want to make it. And the willingness of the United States, the political spectrum to say that that's actually a good thing, given the domestic political environment is really low in the same way that, you know, I would like to have a, a foreign policy strategy. I'd like one. I yeah. just think it'd be a good thing to have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like particularly one tied to a national security and military strategy. I don't think we have one in Syria. Yeah. I don't think we had one under Obama. Don't think we have one in Trump. Afghanistan, same thing, right? I mean, I understand there's a push and pull and do we want more troops, less troops and all the rest. I, I, I think that having that kind of debate in the context of a lot of enlisted men and women and their families who came back in pieces for a lot of wars weren't heroes. Mm-hmm. We failed. We spent a lot of money. The Veterans Administration doesn't work. Like, that's not okay. Yeah, I agree. And so we've, unfortunately, not just on the immigration issue, but on a series mm-hmm. of issues that are kind of fundamental to the franchise here in the United States and in other countries, we've gotten so far away from a real conversation that would inform the way the average citizen thinks right. that we're now going to have a serious backlash. And there are really two ways that backlash can play out politically. The first is that the political parties themselves can become more extreme to reflect that, which is what's happening in the United States and in the UK, or they stay where they are and other parties emerge right. and actually capture it, which is what's happening in Italy and in Germany and, and France. And in France. Yeah, and in yeah, France. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But those are your two options. Right. And I see that. And, and so the good news and the bad news. The good news is this isn't a crisis. We're really wealthy. If you're in the working class and you lose your job, you're not going to starve. This is not a Tunisia moment. Um, We don't need to deal with it as a consequence very much, so we won't address it for a long time. But it's not urgent. It's a chronic condition. Mm -hmm. But as this starts playing out in other countries around the world, and you're not stopping technology, Mm -hmm. right, Um, then you're now talking about disenfranchising people who are much closer to real poverty. Sure. And you're talking about political institutions that don't have the strength and the resilience. And I don't believe that Trump is capable in four or eight years of destroying American political institutions. I just don't. He's one guy. He's not that confident. He has people around him. Deep bureaucracy. People leak. But I I believe that some of these types of leaders will be able to destroy, let's say, political institutions in Hungary. Sure. Right. Or Turkey. Right. Or, you know, Brazil, maybe even maybe in Mexico. Right. Right. And that's where I get worried. Yeah, and and Trump is inviting some of that in Mexico, right? I mean, this he's asking for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 clearly does not understand or care about probably both the the likely doubling down of all of what he is doing on an active election process in Mexico that is not only probably going to return Lopez Obrador as the president, but is going to return Lopez Obrador on the back of an enormous amount of anti-American sentiment, which right. had been fairly latent for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Switching gears, you know, sort of slightly, it's funny, like your book, Amy Chua's book, Mm -hmm. my book, I just got another book from some political scientist at Yale on my desk. There are a bunch of us that are Steven Pinker's book, which is very similar, you know, to some of the arguments I I made. There's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people seeing this sort of problem. The thing I, one of the things I like about Chua's book, which I'm about halfway through, is she identifies this tendency that I write about a lot in my book about the tendency, what what, what evolutionary psychologists uh, call the coalition instinct, that basically any group of people with shared interests over time start to be- behave tribally, 
and um, it's it's hard it's it's not hardwired, but it's innate in us from from evolutionary terms. So you know the Janissaries over time actually have group consciousness and they assert themselves. The Praetorians in ancient Rome, you can go down the list. And one of the things I think you know she makes this case that the coastal elites in America are essentially becoming a de facto ethnicity, yeah, a, a, co- a right? tribe, yeah, yeah, a tribe, and. Yeah. With a lot in common with other elites in other such cities around the world. Right. And so similarly, globalists mm-hmm. really are – I mean, I, I think this is one of the things that – look, I, I am not a fan of Steve Bannon. Uh, I think people know that. Um, I, th- I think the guy has hooves. But he I don't know how you get through all the layers to understand that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the, but that's sort of the, – that's the great sort of Tom Wolf irony of Steve Bannon is that he wears so many layers and yet – What's under ultimately underneath has no layers to it at all. Um, it's um, but uh, uh, this idea that I think a lot of people sense mm-hmm. that you know that what do you call them globalists or the sort of the Schumpeterian tradition of the new class, whatever. Yeah. That these guys are basically acting as if they are a de facto aristocracy. If a if, a, if an alien from another planet came to say, well that. There's more, con- there's more continuity here between the aristocracy systems of the Middle Ages than people living now really recognize, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so one of the things I always – I bring up all the time on, the, on this, this, this podcast is when I, whenever I talk to sort of policymaker types and college students and whatever, I always say one thing to keep in mind is that complexity is a subsidy. The more complicated you make the system, the game, the society, life – the more you are rewarding people with either the intellectual, financial, social capital to be able to get around the to hurdles. figure that out. Right? And, exactly. And it seems to me that one of the things that – one of the defining attributes, which is another thing of continuity. And fascism is the other end of that spectrum. In what way? Uh, in the sense that, you know, you're, it's, it is the simplest possible system for anybody to figure out. That, that is true. Mm-hmm. Right, right. right. You know, and, and populism generally is, is, you know, you know your place in the universe really that. quickly, yeah, right? right. And, and it seems to me, though, that this is one of the things that, you know, I, I, I'm a, I, am, I am constantly, you know, calling my own team on the right out for the problems that we've got these days. But I find that so many sort of liberal elites do not believe that there is any blame to go around on their side of the equation for how we got Trump, how we got this populist yep, moment. I agree. And it is baffling to me because they're the ones, you know, the, the sort of Tom Friedman, Paul Krugman universe is constantly arguing for basically making life more complicated because we need to trust the experts to run everything. And it breeds this sense of resentment in a lot of people. And I believe in expertise. I believe in, tech, you know, in, in technical expertise and all that. But, the, you know, this is a constant, this sort of technologi- uh, technocratic theme, you know, goes back in, in liberalism in America. You know, JFK, you know, talked about how, you know, the problems we face today are just too complicated to leave up to democracy. It doesn't matter, you know? no matter how smart your facts are. If those facts ignore a much more fundamental truth for the average person, which is that you take your fancy facts, but you're not making my life better. In other words, I don't trust you. You're just using your position and your knowledge right. to further screw me. Right. Then they actually know something that is fundamentally more true. Right. 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 And which is why we got Brexit. Right. It's yeah. a whole bunch of people that said either they're not going to vote. Right. Or they're saying they are and they're going to vote the quote unquote wrong way because they understood 
that uh, all of the dire warnings were about dire warnings for people with their own self-interest. Right. It's like Mark Zuckerberg saying that, well, who, who knew that we were going to be so tribal? Right. I mean, I believe that he probably didn't know, but I also know he didn't really care yeah. because he was talking his book. And when people now are and talking— And also he's a bit of a Vulcan, right? So he's like— Yeah, you know. <laughs> but, he, but he was talking his book. And yeah. I mean, fundamentally, when people like Jeff Bezos talk about the fact that the new industrial revolution is just going to empower a lot more people and it's going to be so much wealth and all the rest, like, I, he doesn't know that. Right. And fundamentally, he's talking his book. Right. So we should mistrust those things, and that's why I think we do mistrust— the um, the technocrat the technocracy right. um, that is coming from the fact the quote unquote fact based and in this regard just calling them fake news is so much easier to do yeah yeah right? but the, let's keep in mind though that as all this is happening there is another model and it's not one we like but it's increasingly powerful and it's a Chinese model mm-hmm. right that while we are trying to figure out does liberal democracy really still work or are the globalists taking over and how are we going to respond to that. The Chinese are much more about, quote unquote, civic nationalism, Mm -hmm. because, you know, if you're online in the United States, YouTube wants to make sure you see something more extreme. You're online in China. They're like, no, no, no. Here's what everyone's watching. This is what you watch. And as long as their economic growth is working, my God, you know, the ability of the Chinese model to seem appealing, not just to the average Chinese, but to a lot of people around the world Mm -hmm. is growing much faster than I think we appreciate. Yeah. No, look, and this has been a bugaboo of mine for for 15 years now. I mean, uh, Tom Friedman stuff about the the superiority of the Chinese model I always thought was to borrow a phrase problematic but authoritarian capitalism appeals to our sweet to or authoritarianism appeals to our sweet tooth in all sorts of ways just one technical question for you um sure. how much do you trust all of the stuff about ec- China's economic growth, the reliability of their numbers, the sustainability of their numbers because I'm I still remain skeptical that i mean it feels to me that if what created the financial crisis in the united states mm. was a lot of over leverage bad debt mm. opaqueness refusal to report the reality of of what you what was yeah. on the books my god china's got that you know by orders of magnitude, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I probably trust Chinese growth data more than Saudi unemployment data. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a low bar, right? Um, Best gas station sushi in Alabama kind of thing. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, but, look, I mean, look, there's no question there's an enormous amount of debt, uh, corporate debt and sovereign debt on Chinese books that needs to be written down. And, you know, if you think about like in a Mexico type financial crisis, that's sort of like 15% of net worth of the economy. And in China, it could be worse than that. Maybe it's 25, right? right? You could say, well, my God, that could be a depression. But because of the fact that the Chinese government has so much control, not just over the economy and the companies, but also over the individual actors who got their largesse because of the Chinese government, so they could start telling them, hey, you're going to need to actually put a lot more in, which the Russians have already started doing with their oligarchs. The Chinese haven't even started. So I would argue that the Chinese, the political levers the Chinese have that they have not used yet to insulate and buffer themselves away from a sudden shock of a depression Mm -hmm. and instead play this out over 20 years, it's actually very high. And if that's the case, then... The fact that they've got major economic problems that are kind of baked into an inefficient state capitalist economy is something that is not going to stop them from quickly becoming the largest economy in the world, mm-hmm. invested massively in infrastructure internationally and AI mm-hmm. in a way the American government would not and cannot, right. um, and suddenly starts changing the ballgame. 
Yeah, you should get you should talk to Ben Sass. He's a regular on this podcast, and yeah. he, he just came back from China, and he was a he was a little shaken. I had to sort of slap him around like, by how well they're doing. Well, just by the stuff he saw, you know, um, he. No, he and I think he's absolutely right about this. I've never been to China, but um, you know about how we seem to think that Silicon Valley is the biggest player in the world, and then you go to China and you see this stuff. Not even close, yeah. And um, is that? Do you intend to never go to China? Is that like a bucket list thing? No, 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 no. I I would like to go to China. Just like going to China is something that um, I'm not much interested in doing it on my own dime. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things you have to take a lot of time go do it it's and uh but no i would love to go to china someday because i refuse to go to the vineyard but that's because i go to nantucket and that's <laughs> that's now become cultural for me like i intend to die having never gone to the vineyard yeah i don't i don't think there's any i'm trying to think you could play it that way you know yeah just become something when you're 90 you're like screw it i'm never going to china <laughs> i don't care i know they're the biggest i know they've taken over but if i don't go it's you know yeah it i'm trying to exist is there any place i would just refuse to go um yeah i mean there's that kind of thing uh, i would not you know i would not there, there are people did, i would did he to. hurt you when you were younger, no. Um, but I am I, I am fairly convinced that if you snapped Sidney Blumenthal open like a peapod, nothing but black sulfuric ooze would pour out. And wow! Um, so that between him and Bannon, who do you like least? Oh, it's, it's, I know Bannon a little bit. I've met Bannon. I've talked to Bannon. Bannon personally, uh, but he has guy. hooves. So. But he has hooves. Yeah. yeah um, but it's okay. But I mean, Blumenthal has bat wings and a forked tongue. Okay, so fair enough. Um, uh, I mean, this is also. I mean, this is. I mean, asking me to choose is like picking sides in the Iran Iraq war. I mean, it's just people I just don't like. But um, okay, okay. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I'd like to go to. I would like to go to Saudi Arabia. Historically, the Americans have been really good at picking sides when we don't like either. We, do, <laughs> we really do. We do it well. Yeah. yeah you know, I mean, Bin Laden, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, and and it comes back and bites us in the ass. And the great thing is, we don't learn lessons. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> when you're the biggest out there. Your ability to not lose, learn lessons, and not care is shockingly high. I mean, almost comfortably high. No, that's right. I mean, yeah. in, for a long time, our rivalries with most countries was sort of like the great. You know Harvard Cornell rivalry that everyone at Cornell knows about, and no one at Harvard does. You know we just didn't care. <laughs> exactly, you know, um, doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and uh, all right, so if you had to, if you had to do something that was doable, right? I mean, no magic wand, no sort of. I mean, th- some. What's the noodle that you could rub? You could, you could, you could push, <laughs> push up the carpet and actually get done in American politics that would actually solve some of these problems. I mean, you're, it sounds like you're for the wall. Uh, no. No? Okay. What, building a wall that the Mexicans are paid for or not going to pay for? I don't think... I'm, no, I mean, I... Well, I, I'm totally against... The, I, the problem with the wall is that the wall won't do much except for the symbolism right. that it will send to ensure that the people who have a choice of whether they want to come here or not will start choosing other places. I, I want the greatest talent to actually mm-hmm. come to the United States. I want to keep them here. Mm-hmm. I want those Chinese scientists. Frankly, I mean, I want honey tramps to get them to marry in the United sure, States sure, until sure. they stay here for 20, 30 years and not go back to China with that support. I don't know why the CIA hasn't done that program yet. Maybe they haven't. I just don't know about it. Um, so there's there's that. Okay, good. Like uh-huh. At least the producer's now starting to laugh. I, I, I was like, <laughs> when are we going to get people engaged in this damn podcast you know if you had a live audience this would be so much more fun why don't they fund you properly um but um no things that i think we can do i would say two i mean the first is that i want to promote as many experiments as humanly possible that would play with changing and improving Uh and, and and strengthening the social safety net uh among 
uh, governors, mayors, CEOs, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, mm-hmm. you name it, right? Because there are places where we're doing this sort of stuff, but we need, because we don't, because we haven't identified the problems yet, well, we don't agree on them. Right. You're not going to do it nationally. Right. So you have to take all these, in, in the same way that you have a whole bunch of public intellectuals now that are writing these books. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool, but we're not the ones that are going to do the experiments. Right. The next step is we need to get these experiments moving, right? Because we don't know, like, what's the equivalent of solar power or battery storage or, God forbid, cold fusion, like, in this field. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I would really want to do is get the Americans, the Europeans, and the Japanese together on AI. Mm-hmm. We're vastly better than they are. Mm-hmm. They're not even close. But we're not doing multilateral right now. And we need to understand that the the thing that will destroy liberal democracy in the next 20 years, if we don't get it right, is if the Chinese dominate AI. Mm-hmm. That will destroy the liberal democratic model. I really believe that. And right now, we don't have a strategy for that, even in the US. Yeah. And to the extent that we do, it's unilateral. Now, it's one thing if we give up on TPP. Give up on TPP and, you know, that we still have a lot of mutual interdependence in the global economy, in trade flows, the Europeans, the Latins, the Asians, they all still need us. Right. But when you start talking about technology, there is no WTO equivalent. There's no architecture. The Chinese are now building what will be the architecture. And we are literally sitting here by ourselves, twiddling our thumbs, while the Europeans and Japanese are going, hmm, I might need to hedge. Yeah. That's a really dangerous thing. Yeah. So those are the two things I would want to do. All right. So um, I'm really glad you asked me that because uh, I don't think I've said that anywhere. And it's important. Well, one of, one of the things I like about the answer is that for comp- almost completely different reasons, whenever people ask me what my solution to yeah. our problems is, is to push as much power down as far out of Washington as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. And m- the bulk of my answer is is that one of the reasons why we get these populist uprisings is that yeah. civil society isn't giving people a sense of belonging, belonging. meaning, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And the benefit of pushing it down the most local level possible is that, first of all, you give people a sense of control over their own lives because mm-hmm. they know the names of the powers that right. be. Right, right. And you're still going to have culture war fights, but you're also going to have to look – the winners are going to have to look the losers in the eye. Yeah. Which creates a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of humanity about these things. Yeah, that's um, like why we like pedestrians, and when you're in cars, it's a big difference, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but so, so one of the things I like to explore on this podcast are um, really weird ideas. Okay, and okay. so um, I talked to Ross Douthat, an old friend of mine, um, about why I think that the Pope needs to have needs to revive the idea of papal armies, um, which I kind of, for peacekeeping and all that kind of stuff. Who said, you know, I'm, I'm not as beholden to the Westphalian nation state system as, as some of you, you know, globalists. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Catholics would be fine. Yeah. Uh, with <laughs> um, arms. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> it's worked historically. Yeah. And I talked to Ben Sass about how one of the solutions to sort of the, the computer hacking stuff is to revive the old concept of, um, Letters of Mark, you know, it's in the Constitution. You give some guys some little freedom to do reprisals against piracy and whatnot, and who knows, maybe it'll work. Uh, one of the arguments that I've argued for for a long time is that, you know, I, I you know, in part because I would lose my right-wing decoder ring if I didn't dislike the UN. And full disclosure, my wife works for Nikki Haley at the UN, but okay. all the more reason to dislike her. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but one, one of the reasons <laughs> you've uh, got the inside scoop. You know, <laughs> she comes home and like, you won't believe the. Sh- I just had to deal with. There's yeah. some of that. Yeah. And, and my wife was once a delegate to some women's conference at the UN. She could not believe what she saw there. But one of my problems with the UN is that it, it, it and I have many, is it enshrines the concept of might makes right. I mean, that's what the Security Council is about. Yep. Right? Another one is the only criteria for, for membership is existence, right? I mean, as long as you are a nation state, you can belong to the UN. Existence and recognition. 
Okay, but so I mean, there are a handful of places that like all right, Kurdistan is not yet a member, but mm-hmm. for the most part, right? If you're a nation state, you're in, right? Mm-hmm. What would be wrong? I'm not saying get out of the UN yet. But what would be wrong with creating something that had slightly higher standards? You know, when you create higher standards, you get people to sort of – or and nations to do the things that they you need to do to meet them, right? And what would be wrong with a league of democracies? You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be Anglosphere. Mm-hmm. But some institution that has a little bit of moral authority, has, you know uh, – tighter rules about being members that can be a counterweight to the UN on some stuff and also give us some sort of as NATO does give us some moral legitimacy when we talk about taking doing things in the world that would also serve as an extension of this sort of really Americanist globalism that we used to have yeah well I mean first of all Abe uh, is the one that's probably most prominently been talking about this uh-huh. um, I mean which I didn't know I mean I've been yeah yeah, yeah. I mean he, my not drum. this time around but the first time he was prime minister uh-huh. before he kind of had the ostensible health issues and then yeah. lost it and then came back this was that was his big strategic idea didn't go anywhere because people didn't think it was necessary China was much smaller at that point all the rest I mean part of the reason that becomes harder is because um, you know America first and the ability to lead by example is something that has been so much more rejected, not mm-hmm. only by the United States proactively, but also by all of those who would potentially follow our beacon. So I think it's a much harder thing to do now sure. than it would have been, say, at the moment when the Soviet Union collapsed right. and we had put the Marshall Plan in place, right. which is what we needed to do. Like yeah. That was the singular moment of failure, in my perspective, from when we could see the beginning of the end of Pax Americana, mm-hmm. right at that moment. Right. And politically, when you ask me, what are my solutions that are doable? That's one that's not doable. Mm -hmm. So the League of Democracy idea, in my view right now, is less doable. But the idea of having stronger multilateral architecture Mm. for coalitions of the willing on issues that aren't just let's go bomb somebody, I think is extremely smart. We need much more of that. And so, for example, when the Brits talk about Brexit, Instead of talking about, like, let's figure out how to do an existing customs union, I want to see the Brits say, look, what we really need is to talk about new architecture that involves data and services. Like when you did the EU, we didn't have any of that. They should be putting all of their time towards actually strengthening and improving the quality of standards. Like that's what we need. We don't need to fiddle with the old trade deals. NAFTA is becoming more irrelevant every day. Right now, U.S.-Mexico trade is less than 50% covered by NAFTA. Mm -hmm. We do need something new, but it's not about breaking NAFTA. It's about actually creating something from scratch that involves the transcending it. And that I think that your general idea on democracies is exactly that, right? It's like, where are the places we can do that? And that's my tech idea, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So I know we're going long, and we can probably continue some of this when you have me on your fancy video. G-Zero World, which people will watch. That's right. Um, Where can they find G-Zero World? If you just look up Ian Bremmer and G-Zero World, you'll find it. YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever. It's all over the place. If you say it three times, it just materializes? No, say it three times, you disappear. That's a a feature. It's not a bug. Um, So, But one of the questions I used to ask all the time is, if you could talk to a normal person in the normal part of America, which neither of us really live or work in, about what surprises... I mean, I know you live in New York. Did you grow up You grew up in New York? I grew up in the projects uh, outside Boston. Okay. In Chelsea, right? I yeah, okay. that's right. Yeah. I was thinking about... Because when I was looking at your bio, it said you grew up working class in Chelsea, and I immediately think of New York. And yeah. the problem is... No one who was working class who grew up in Chelsea called it Chelsea because back then it was Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah, now. Sure. Um, but uh, what is the thing that if you were talking to you know sort of a normal middle class person in, in, in 
Peoria that would most surprise them about the world that you inhabit or about either about Washington, oh, you know, or the international institutions, whatever, sort of the, from the perch that you're at. Normally, I ask this to people who live in Washington. What is the thing that would e- either surprise you the most or would surprise people you were talking to the most about Washington? But since you're not technically fully a Washington guy, you know, about the the commanding heights of the the globalist world that you think would surprise most people? Oh, well, I think the point of just how similar it is for all of those people everywhere, not just inside the U.S., which they get, but yeah. outside the U.S., Yeah. right? I mean, the Davos thing. Yeah. Um, that, you know, really, when when in, you're in the United States and you're go, railing on Mexicans, right, and the average globalist knows a lot of Mexicans and might not even think of them necessarily as Mexicans. They're right. just like yet another wealthy business guy or diplomat or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever it is. Or someone who works incredibly hard on their landscaping. You know, yeah. it's, it's one or the other. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And, and and that's, you know, and, and that's that's a big part of the challenge. It's, I think, the fundamental lack. So when I read J.D. Vance, you know, sort of which everyone did, Hillbillyology, and I mean, it, so much of what he went through really resonated with me. Uh, it, it was so clear. So I went to Tulane undergraduate, which I thought was a great idea because I got a full scholarship. Right. They gave me, I mean, at the time, even a stipend of like 8,000 bucks a year just to live. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, what, how amazing is this? I'm not going to take any loans. And it turned out that, despite, and, I, and that was like of the kids in the projects, that was the best university that anyone was going to. Right. Sure, no sure, question. Sure. Most of them don't weren't going to college. And, and yet it was almost a huge mistake because at Tulane that you go to the job fair at Tulane. That no one's from McKinsey or yeah, Goldman yeah, yeah. Sachs is going there. Your ability to get from Tulane into one of the top universities, no, as a graduate student, yeah. no way, because the professors didn't have connections. Like, even having made it as far as I did from the projects with my mother, who did everything for me and gave me every opportunity, I almost didn't make it. Yeah. And even though I'm a pain in the ass that was trying every lever, and then I think about, oh, my God, if it was that hard. From Tulane. And from Tulane yeah. and from the projects. And for J.D. Vance, it's that hard. And given what's happened in the last 30, 40 years since I was that age, yeah. how much harder it's gotten, you realize, like, this is just not the country I thought it was yeah. when I was growing up. And, I, look, I wanted out. And when I go back and talk to some of my friends when I was growing up, and they're my Facebook friends and now, I mean, they're delighted that I, you know, made it. Mm-hmm. But this isn't the country that I... I wanted to grow up in. And, you know, we're not a capitalist country because most of us don't have capital. You don't have capital. You just want a job. You want your kids to do better. And in that regard, we have a lot more in common with the average Chinese, mm-hmm. right? But no one's drawing that connection. Yeah. Right? That's, I, I really want people, I mean, I've never written, I'm a political scientist. I've never written a book that's so personal. Mm-hmm. It's a 10th book. Yeah. Every book has been, you know, G zero, rise of state capitalism, the J curve. I mean, stuff where like I felt like I had insights that would be useful to people that read The Economist and thought about these things. This is a very different kind of book for me. This is a book that's saying, I'm not as a political scientist, but more importantly as a human being, I'm deeply disturbed with where our society and those like it are presently heading. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people that I know and respect are not actually either aware of or prepared to admit the scope of the challenge. Yeah. So, to summarize, buy gold. Buy a <laughs> <laughs> dollar for a while. Yeah, for a little while. Right? I mean, you know, our allies are going to be much more hurt by this than we are. Yeah. We've got so much talent, so many resources. I mean, I think part of the reason that this is a big problem is because this is not going to hurt the U.S. economy in the near term. Right? I mean, right. we are the cleanest dirty shirt. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. yeah. 
the cleanest, dirty shirt. All right, with that, great to be with you, man. Ian, thanks for having. This me. was fun. Thanks for coming. And cheers. We'll do it again. That was a handshake. You didn't see it. Yeah, it was a virtual handshake. Jack hates it when we I shake hands on the podcast. It drives him crazy for some reason. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But in real life, does he also hate it? Or is it okay? He's a strange duck. I can't. Okay. Him out. Nice talking anyway. to you too, dude. <laughs> yeah. All right. Give us a thumbs up. Bird. We're done. All right, so uh, Ian Bremer has left the building. It's always a little daunting for me to talk to somebody who talks faster than I do. Um, but uh, I thought it was interesting. Lots of stuff we could have gotten into, and we probably will on his fancy schmancy show when I go over there. Um, Jack, what did you think of it? I was disappointed that you did not. Uh, I mean, there's a whole part in the middle of the book, the sort of Straussian core, perhaps, is uh, he discusses sort of wargaming scenarios on how an assortment of countries could collapse in the near future. And you did not get into that, which no, I thought would have been fascinating. But, but since you criticized me on air, you're, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, good luck with your book tour. <laughs> um, no, I thought, um, I think it's interesting. I think, you know, we probably see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. I do look through um, his blurbs and... A bunch know, of globalists. There's a lot of globalists. But, you know, look, it's useful to have guys inside that tent calling people out for the mistakes that they made. I think that's useful. Yeah, and, and inside the tent pissing out, that's as right. they say. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the book tour. Uh, folks, this is the last podcast before my life becomes a forced march of, of rank and grotesque self-promotion across the land. Um, oh, that hasn't happened already? You have you've seen nothing yet, um, and um, uh, I'm 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 happy to announce that the book is already in a second printing, uh, coming shortly. Uh, the next episode of the Matt Lewis podcast I'm going to be on, I believe, the next episode of John Miller's uh, great book, not great books, the uh, book. In in fifty years, you'll be on uh, the Great Books podcast. But for now, you'll be on Bookmonger. Bookmonger, right? <laughs> um, and I hope it'll help me. Or maybe a hundred years. I hope it'll help me mong some books. <laughs> I believe on Monday or Sunday night. I don't know when it's going to drop. Um, the, my favorite interview that I've done so far, in part because I'm such a Russ Roberts fanboy, um, will come out, and that was my um, talk with um, Russ Roberts's podcast, Econ Talk, which I highly recommend to people who want just unalloyed sort of eggheadiness. I think Russ Roberts is one of the greatest guys out there in terms of dealing with like sometimes admittedly obscure economic issues. Um, not every episode is my thing, but he's the best guy out there at sort of checking his own biases and, and sort of really getting into stuff. And I love that thing. Um, and I, you know, I actually, I actually thank econ talk in the acknowledgements because I would, you know, there's, I did, there was so much economic stuff I had to learn, and it was a great place to start. Uh, also, my friend Bill Crystal, I did a long conversation with him, uh, largely tied to the book, but we went off on various tangents. Um, that uh, His Crystal Conversations thing, which is both a video series and a podcast thing, will also be dropping Sunday or Monday. And then, like, the crazy book tour stuff happens. I'm going to be on The Daily Show next week. I'm going to be on Martha McCallum's show, Jake Tapper. If you're in New York, uh, there's a public event I'm doing at the New York Public Library on the book. 
And you can go to jonahgoldberg.com to find out all the other stuff. I have a bunch of talks around the country. A, a dismaying number of them right now are invitation only, but we're looking to add more and more public events as things go. My wife is increasingly dismayed by how much travel I'm going to be doing this summer and this spring. But, you know, you spend as much time as I did um, working on this damn thing. It's kind of crazy not to try and push it out there. And and so I'm grateful to everybody who's bought the book. I'm grateful to everybody who's interested in the book. If you haven't seen it yet, we did an excerpt for the latest issue of National Review, um, which is sort of about 3,500 words, some such excerpt from the introduction of the book. It'll give you a sense of the framework, but not the whole argument, to be sure. Am I leaving anything out, Jack? Probably. Yeah. I'm, exa- <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm preemptively exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm overcome with Weltschmerz. Um, you need to try microdosing. That seems to be what Rob is on right now. Yeah, it, although... helping him out. I don't think the time to experiment with new hallucinogens is right on the eve of your book tour. Well, just just stick with the old ones then. That's that's. <laughs> Um, nothing, nothing better than the, the good old LSD. So and, I, so I, heard, so I hear. And you don't watch Walking Dead, right? No. Yeah. So I finally saw the season finale, and it, and so I'm not. We're not going to go into a big exegesis on on Walking Dead, but it was basically stupid. And um, I know. And so I said last night on Twitter, I watched the season finale, and I thought it was basically dumb. And I was amazed by how many people. You know, had said, "Oh, I stopped watching that three seasons ago. I stopped watching it two seasons ago." And then this morning, which is in pop culture terms, as much a sign of the apocalypse for that show as rivers turning to blood or raining frogs is for you know biblical literalists. David French said he has officially given up on the show, and I didn't wow. think that was possible. Now I'm going to ride that thing to the very end because I've invested in it and. I, I'm sort of like Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. Once I commit to a certain show, it takes a lot to shake me loose of it, although it does sometimes happen. But I was, I'm really, I don't understand how the writers can ruin something that was that popular for a certain reason, but they've, they've managed. Um, what else do we have to talk about? Um, I can't remember. Microdosing, man. That's what yeah. you need. Yeah. Well, I sorry, I still got to go finish the G file, um, which will be the last G file before the crazy book tour. For those of you who don't know what the G file is, it is my um, highly self indulgent, quote unquote, newsletter. If, and <laughs> if there are any listeners of this podcast who did not know what the G file was, oh, I think I think there are. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. I don't know I, I mean, send us an email because I'd be fascinated to do some demographic cross tabs on that particular subset. Yeah, well, if you want to send us an email about anything, it's uh, remnant, the remnant pod. Yeah, at gmail.com. At gmail.com. And again, if you uh, uh, say nice things about this podcast on Twitter, you're more likely to get bountiful retweets either from the um, AI program that runs the Remnant Podcast Twitter account or even from uh, yours truly. And um, I just feel like this is a wasted opportunity because I don't know when I can podcast again. I kind of feel like I should be like taking deep breaths and writing letters, you know, home. My dearest Jessica, my heart aches for the time we will be reunited. Like it's some sort of Ken Burns Civil War thing. I have been and always shall be <laughs> your producer. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, thanks everybody for listening. We will try to do some stuff from New York um, on The Remnant. 
And uh, if you have guests that you think we should have, topics you think we should do, um, cash that you want to send me, uh, we are open to all of that. And until next time, thanks very much. <laughs>